Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 11th, 2018, episode 124. Thumbs up. Greetings one and all. It's me, Kevin England, your humble hobbyist beekeeper and enthusiast for all things beekeeping. I come to you this episode on a rainy night in New Jersey. It's a rainy night in Jersey. No, actually, it's a rainy night last night while I recorded most of the podcast. This morning, Sunday morning, I'm just recording the intro in preparation for being able to release the episode it's 7 a.m. in the morning, so forgive my voice. In about 30 minutes, Bob Kloss will be here, and we're heading south to Philadelphia today, the Franklin Institute to be specific, to see Leo. I say Leo, but I cannot figure out how to say his last name. The Philly Beekeepers Guild hosted Dr. Tom Seeley yesterday, and today they host Dr. Leo Shereshkin. I think that's how you say it. I spoke with Bob about attending this year's session and begged off the Saturday session because, well, who doesn't love Dr. Seeley? I've seen the talks he was scheduled to give twice already, and schedules being what they are lately, I opted to stay home, and you'll hear some of the exploits that took place yesterday at some point. I'm a little nervous about this morning because I do not have a ticket. I went to buy one, and they were sold out. It says on the website that they'll sell tickets at the door. I thought that if I got there and we couldn't get in, I know Bob has a ticket because he was able to get one before they sold out. I would leave him there and go cruise around, bop around Philly and take photographs. I could occupy myself for a day. But as it is, it is a rainy morning in Jersey and it's supposed to pour all day today. There's flood watches and things like that. So that doesn't seem too appealing. I'm really keeping my fingers crossed at the risk of going down there, but we'll figure it out. Anyway, perhaps when I get back tonight and export and produce the episode, I'll sneak in a recap of what was covered, but let me get to what will be in the episode and we can move along with the program. So first things first, on my walk, with my lovely wife, Sharon. We were chatting about the information that came through about the New Jersey Department of Agriculture regulations. I'll have a short update on that. And I was talking to Sharon about preparing some honey for the honey show, which is one of the features here today. Topic number two in the episode will be lithium chloride. There's been a lot of news on that for varroa mites. Topic number three, a little expose on Rob Burt Manley. Topic number four, I had a chance to go and see the Honey Show judging for the New Jersey State Honey Show. Topic number five, I'm going to share my thoughts on an idea of building a polariscope, a modern version of one. Topic number six, I stumbled across the jam frame. I'll tell you what it is how you would use it in some impressions. And then I have a couple of roundtable things, odds and ends. Homosote board update from the UK. A short update about Broodminder. New chapter for them. 
a little bit of listener feedback. And who knows? When I get back tonight, I might throw a couple more odds and ends in there, but we'll see where it takes us. So we'll go ahead and get this chapter started. First, wanted to say, if you want to send a message to me, kevin at bkcorner.org. I haven't given my address out for a while. If you have any topics you want me to cover or things you want me to circle back on, please feel free. Send me a note. I'm usually pretty good about responding to everybody at some point. The second thing is our website, www.bkcorner.org. I'll probably say it 20 times during the episode. Look at our show notes. But you can go there, episode number 124. Wow, 124. Mm. And if you want to visit our websites from the association I'm involved in, it's nwba.njbeekeepers.org. I'm the webmaster there. Our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash nwnjba. If you're starting out in beekeeping, there's tons and tons and tons of stuff there for you. Uh, as you listen to the podcast, if you go back and listen through episodes, if that's one of you, uh, you're one of those folks, um, do know that there's a lot of video presentations, as you'll hear throughout our catalog. Haven't posted a lot of stuff out there, been taking a break from that, but spring is coming, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of media to go, so... You'll see more out there. Yeah, I guess that's it. Let's go ahead and get to the local hive report. Local hive report, there's really not much to say. It's been cold the last couple weeks since I recorded. Cold in the 20s, 30s for a high. This week, finally, it's going to break. It was 30-something degrees this morning when I came down. It's been 10, 12, 20. So in that context, I suspect that we'll get a flying day this week. I'm probably going to be at work. But uh, not sure how the hives are doing. I walked in and looked at them yesterday, but didn't futz around with them because I had to move along. Um, I was actually out just taking photos of them. I suspect they're doing okay. Hopefully I didn't lose any more. We'll see. The next two weeks should tell. We're going to get a warm spat and things will be flying. I really should probably go close off my dead outs. I did go through two of the hives that didn't make it. Pretty typical winter death loss. Small little cluster on a frame. What kills me is I went back and looked at pictures of these hives in October and November, and they looked huge. They looked fine. And believe me, there's tons of stores. But, you know, there's evidence of varroa. So the difficulty that occurred is really probably about my summer treatments with Apivar. The packages were open. That's the only way this could be explained. And an open Apivar is no good. It's a non-treatment. Dumb mistake. And then when I took uh, mite treatment samples, I found my mite samples high, which explains it. You know, and we were having some conversation, is Apivar losing its effectiveness? But I have to come to terms with the fact that it was probably more likely the packages were open. So this year, got to rebuild again and replace those hives that, that didn't, in essence, get treated 
oxalic vaporization at the end just wasn't enough to uh, take it down. It was too late in the year. Bees were already parasitized, and that's why they didn't survive. So hopefully the ones that I have are going to hang on. They're not in a perilous state. They're going to overcome, and I'm going to get an early treatment on them and go to my game plan for 2018. So next episode, we should probably have more of a report of where things stand. I will say it did peek in on the Waray Hive, still doing okay, so that's good to go. All right, so a short, and that's the way it is this time of year, local hive report, check. Let's go ahead and move into topic number one. Out for a walk, Sunday morning. Super Bowl Sunday. What kind of plane is that, Cherishy? Little cones, something. Look up above us. See this tree? Uh, sumac. Sumac. That's what it is. Bees like sumac, don't they? Yeah. So the birds like the seeds. Birds like the seeds. Hi. <laughs> So we're walking a trail in Reddington, and I thought I'd ask you, did you see that email about the New Jersey Department of Agriculture? The, the senators are, there's a senator and assemblyman putting an opposition in where they give 30 days for Department of Agriculture to do an amendment. Did you see that? I did, I see that. We really need to support that. So that's interesting. There's a certain side effect of that that I don't, I do and I don't appreciate. There was a meeting January 24th for the New Jersey Department of Agriculture. They had their board meeting. And in it, Director Fisher said that they received some thousand plus comments. Well, I had 250 on my own, so they got thousands and thousands of comments is my guess. Right? Right. How many comments did you have in your thing? At least four or five. At least. So here's what I want. I want them to respond, or maybe I don't. We want them to respond to those comments. We want to know what they think and how they're going to answer them. But then again, be careful what you ask for, right? Well, maybe it's they're agreeing with it all, so therefore they want to just oppose this whole thing. Well, the soundbite came out that said they wanted to, they were going to look at the densities because that overwhelmingly must have been the biggest problem, right? Right. So they're going to kill this thing. Then what happens? Because I have a sense they're going to kill it, right? Right. doesn't feel like they're going to be able to resolve all these problems in 30 days. So I guess we'll have to be patient and wait. So we're walking on the trails by Deer Path Park, which is near where we keep our mentoring hives. We walked down to the Raritan River this morning. It's a nice little walk. Took our new camera, taking photos. It's quiet, we haven't seen a single individual. And as we're walking back to our cars, it's snowing. Just a light little snow. So Sharon. Yes. Honey. 
honey. Hi, honey. Hi, honey. Hello. Our honey's ready to go for the show. Nice. How is that for you? <laughs> Good. You gonna win? No, I don't think we're winning. First time ever, huh? Yeah. That's pretty exciting. It is pretty exciting. I think we did a good job. I, uh, yeah, I certainly you did a good job. Spent enough time yes, messing did. with it, didn't I? But, but I learned a lot. That's how it is, I suppose. So we were talking about this at the meeting the other night. And how it's really strange that they're doing the... They do this in January, February. Why does that make sense? Because everybody's honey coming out of summer has sat all winter and is crystallized. I guess if it comes fresh out of the hive, and I don't know this, you don't have to worry about the crystallization problem, right? And our honey was so crystallized. Well, we keep it in the basement where it's cold. Yeah, it's got the perfect uh, conditions, right? You're supposed to keep it according to the dice method, like 58, 60 degrees. And our basement's that temperature all year round. Or less. Or less. In winter. Well. So maybe next year we, when we pull some, we keep it up stairs so it doesn't crystallize so much anyway. So one of the problems I had with the jars is I guess the jars knocked against each other and they nicked each other and had scuffs and scratches. And I tried to polish it out with toothpaste. And then I had to use your expert nose, because mine doesn't work, <laughs> to, to say, does this still smell like toothpaste? I have a question. Go ahead. Why is it that they judge you on the jar? It's all about the honey. Shouldn't it be about the honey? Well, I think at some point, people have gotten so good that they have to add additional judging points. So right? you need to buy a case of jars just to find a good jar? Well, if you're at the American Beekeepers Federation, the conference was 8,000 people entering. <clears throat> yeah, I guess you do. Hmm. Seems to lose the all about the honey, though. Yeah, well... You do want the product to be perfect for the consumer, right? So there is a certain aspect of pristine. I suppose it's true. But it's over and top. Can't imagine the... Well, you don't know, right? I know what uh, manufacturers go through. Oops. Through the ice and... Certainly use that natural... All about the naturalness, though, don't you? Well, people who do you honey shows, they heat their honey and super filter it. Think about how much I filtered it, right? People always say, just use nylon stockings. It wasn't enough. I did uh, seven patches of nylon strained through seven layers to get the right filter. Yeah, that's a lot. It is a lot. What do you think of the labels? These are neat looking. I think you did a good job designing them. You okay with Horizon Honey still? Yeah, I like it. I like the look of what you did. With the little sun at the top. and I originally had the bottom of the logo all black. 
But I thought that would look kind of funny. But it is yellow and black, right? That's not bad. I thought it looked a little more... What's the word I'm looking for? Clean and professional with the with the white and the... I got to work in your paisley. I like the paisley, little flowery paisley look. Yeah, gives it a homemade... Pretty, yeah. Yeah, because otherwise that, that logo could be a little sterile looking, right? Yes. Yeah, so it gives a little, little floral touch. <laughs> no bees on it. That's okay. So originally what I thought about was in the sun at the top where it says meets the horizon, of putting little hives in the silhouette. Right. But it seemed to me, one, I didn't have enough time, and two, it seemed too small. Right. I don't know if people would have recognized it as a hive. For the small label that it is. Yeah. But if we were doing a logo, I could see us working that in somehow. Yeah, I liked your design of that. That was neat looking. So it's neat to take the sketchbook out and sketch a couple things. And... Yeah. I got something else about the jars when you're ready to go back to that. Okay, go back. You had at one point tried using a case of jars that you found that we had that were left from my Aunt Rini. And I'm sure they're really old because they were so wavy looking, right? Yeah, they were the old wavy glass, like old windows I mean, from the 40s. that to me is really neat. I thought so too. But it won't do for a honey show, will it? Well, I guess this is the question. Will people see the nostalgia of that? Will they even understand it? I don't know. You and I get it. Hear that gunshot? I did hear <laughs> it. We're walking through the woods and you're allowed to hunt here. They want you to wear fluorescent orange. And we're not wearing. We have a red beanie on. They probably don't think anybody would be out here. So, anyway. I thought those jars were really, really cool. And yeah, I think from a sentimental standpoint. But you would only know it if you look through a polariscope. Right. So. Which they will at the honey show. Right? Yeah. Contest. Maybe we ought to. Well, I'm going to build my own polariscope now. Which I'll talk about later. And maybe we save those jars for ourselves, that one case. Yeah. So the problem, <laughs> I don't know if you know I did this. I got the jars from our meeting and I put them in, put the honey in it, and then it was too crystallized. So I poured it out and then I poured it back in and I poured it out. We couldn't use ours because the caps were bigger on these jars. Oh, right. And the jars that we have in our storage. I don't know. If I, if I was thinking about um, entering jars into the into EAS, why not, right? But the labels are no good. I didn't like those labels. And I don't think changing the ink the ink is designed for our printer, and it's inkjet, and when it gets wet, it wiped off and smeared, yeah. which was well, no good. I thought maybe that would be that glossy paper. Maybe not. I think you know the dog's tired when she follows us and not we're following her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the way there, all the way down, She fo we followed her. So at the end, I think the bottles came out really, really good. 
I ended up smearing the labels two or three times, and I ended up peeling two of them off and replacing them. I'm glad I printed a whole batch. Yeah, I wonder if it's that glossy paper, Kev, that makes it... Well, what's funny is that stuff is labels for this purpose. Is it? Yeah. I wonder if you printed it with a laser printer if it would do that. Maybe. Maybe next time I'll take up the staples yes. and have them printed. Could try that. We have more time. We'll so that. the one thing I know, I didn't tell you this, was that you're supposed to put the sheet in and I, I put it on the printer on high. We have a really good printer, you know that, right? Quality printer. Do we? Good. Yeah, because you wanted to print pictures, so when I bought it, yes, I bought a really good one okay. to print photos. Well, anyway, when you put the thing in, you have to put it in a certain way. The template, you turn it upside down, and it has to be tucked in. And the first one, there was maybe not even a sixteenth of inch of play left to right. And of course, when it printed, it was a sixteen off. So when I printed the second sheet, I went in and I set the tray up the right way so it fed it in perfectly and the second batch registered. Because otherwise the logo was shifted up and if you're doing a show, you can't have the bottom of the logo look funny. Right. And that's what's funny about this show is there's logos in it. That's unusual. Right. But they have somebody from over or out of town coming in to judge a show. We're trekking up a hill here. You can hear it in our breathing. <sighs> it's not too bad. No. A little bit of a rise. Anyway, thanks for chatting with me. No problem. Anytime, honey. Good to hear from you. <laughs> Wish me luck in the show. Good luck. Over and out. Topic number two, I want to talk about the lithium chloride discovery. Yes, I saw it. The current research article making the rounds in beekeeping circles, especially Facebook, is about the serendipitous discovery that lithium chloride kills Varroa destructor. In the past two weeks, since the publish of this journal article, January 12th, Beekeepers have been sharing articles calling out the discovery as a new way to kill Varroa mites, and they're very excited. The journal article, Lithium Chloride Effectively Kills the Honeybee Parasite Varroa Destructor by a Systemic Mode of Action, is posted in the journal Scientific Reports, article number 683 from volume number 8. I know of several of these types of discoveries that get announced, but subsequently go away. The jury is still out as to whether this one will make it. Recall episode 37. This is really cool. I am still hopeful that the discovery of how to combat small hive beetles will surface, but the serendipitous discovery seems to have gone nowhere. In the case of lithium chloride, the research indicated that scientists discovered a kill against varroa mites, but not in the RNA materials they were testing. It was in the delivery mechanisms for administering the RNA materials. It appears that they stumbled upon the fact that lithium chloride, and not 
the RNAi materials were killing the Varroa mites. Now, they were clear to say that it was not, how do I say this the right way? RNAi is not a dead end. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is both of these things have avenues. And in this case, they actually went further to test lithium chloride to learn more about it. And that's really what this study was about. In order to explore the topic further, they conducted a side activity and tested different concentrations of lithium chloride in millimoles. Wait, uh, Kevin moment. Millimole. That's a new one for me, too. Millimole, indicated as a lowercase m and a capital letter M together. Not to be confused with mm as a common indicator for millimeters. A millimole represents a unit of measurement of chemical substance and is equal to one thousandth of a mole. A mole is defined as the amount of substance that contains as many elementary entities, atoms, ions, molecules, or free radicals. Confused still? Yeah, so am I. I'll simplify this by saying that it appears that they measure how much lithium chloride is presented by one of those parameters. And let's just say, for illustrative purposes, it's molecules. In this case of the study, they tested concentrations of 2 millimoles, 4 millimoles, 10 millimoles, and 25 millimoles. So millimoles, suffice it to say, is about how potent the lithium chloride was. End of Kevin moment. It should be noted that along with testing how well these concentrations killed mites, they did, of course, test to see if it could have an impact on the bees in the colony. Because if you're killing bees, what's the point? In a 24-hour exposure, it appears it did not affect the mortality of the bees. Then they fed it to freshly hatched worker bees to see what the impact was. Over time, it reduced lifespans and had more of an impact the higher the concentration got. Controls lasted 26 days. Let me say what I think that means. If you monitored the lifespan of a bee, the normal bee out of a colony not impacted would last 26 days. Bees fed two millimoles, died three days earlier, and had a 23-day lifespan. 10 millimoles dropped from 26 normal to 22. 25 millimoles dropped from 26 to 19 days. So in short, long-term exposure effects were not good, not positive. So my guess is you want to feed it for 24 hours and then pull it out of the hive. That's what I take away from that. So this discovery was made with lithium chloride. And it got the scientists to thinking, what about other forms of lithium? So it appears they tested lithium citrate, lithium acetate, lithium sulfate, lithium lactate, and lithium carbonate. Without going into a table and chart readout, the conclusion was, quote, we could confirm that other lithium compounds have similar 
potential for the use as systemic acaricide, end quote. In making that statement, they did share that some compounds are not as suitable for inside the hive. Bees do not tolerate sulfate as well, and carbonate is not a good choice due to low water solubility. And presumably that worked because they were trying to that won't work because they were trying to feed it via a water-based solution. So in the end, there were some ideas put forth in the study about the viability of this on onset. Remember, this is just a first discovery in them tinkering around. Their statement is, it was easy to apply because it can be fed to bees. Good for beekeepers. Lithium chloride is water-soluble and will therefore not accumulate in beeswax, which is a crucial problem for long-time treatment concepts using synthetic varroicides because wax has lipophilic properties, meaning it absorbs everything. And as far as I know, it holds on to it. Oral toxicity of most lithium compounds to mammals is relatively low. More on that one in a second. It is moderately priced. And the last one, I'm paraphrasing this one, but a very small amount per bee is sufficient to kill phoretic mites. So, now to some thoughts about this. Interesting? Yeah, kind of. It's extremely disconcerting that people are going to start putting this stuff in their hives. Yes, with an exclamation point, people are going to do this, and they should not. It may not be known to the common person, but it calls out in the study, for those that read far enough down through the research paper, lithium has a long-standing use for bipolar disorder. Me personally, I'm aware of that fact on a personal level, as my mother was a manic depressant, something that manifested according to my father after a transfusion from childbirth. Whether he was right or not on that, it made for an interesting childhood, and I could tell you that lithium is really toxic and hard on a human being. I know that firsthand, and you won't be uh, seeing me put that stuff in my hives. So a little background, lithium was discovered in the 1800s and used for a number of human treatments. It should not be lost that at one point it was banned by the FDA in the 1940s because of fatalities, but it came back to use in the 1970s. The cautious world would know that lithium has a central nervous system toxicity, and some of the exposures to it are tremoring hands, nausea, slurred speech, sluggishness, sleepiness, vertigo, thirst, and other less than desirable outcomes, which I won't share. I will tell you that when my mother's doses were not right, I saw all of those things firsthand. In the summertime, when it would get really hot and you would sweat, you would lose a lot of liquid and it would change lithium concentrations. And forgive my candor on this, but my mother used to go bat bleep crazy sometimes. And the lithium was not the way to go. It was really terrible stuff. And eventually they got away from it. 
In fact, our company that I work for developed a Pixaban. No, not a Pixaban. Aripiprazole, which was a treatment for this. Aripiprazole is known as Abilify, as a commercial product name. But Okay, so let's see. Let's kill a bug on a bug with a potential toxic substance to humans in proximity of a food supply. Okay, I know. Think of the 85 other things we put in our hives. It makes me cringe to think of that notion, of course. And that is at the heart of why I would love nothing more than to go treatment-free. Perhaps this is a rationalization to some of the products I use, but they are approved. And whether you trust that statement or not, the simple fact is, this is not, so please do not use it. Do not experiment with this stuff. If someday turns out to be a viable path, then let science do its thing. What scares me is there is already a search context on Amazon. They have a helpful search thing. I forget the name of the term. When you start to type, it does some sort of forecast and gives you search terms. Their search algorithm for lithium chloride prompts you to lithium chloride for bees. You know what that means? Some beekeepers are buying this stuff to experiment with. I do not usually get this preachy about things, but please, please, I implore you, do not do it. This is not like oxalic on shop towels. This stuff impacts humans, and it's really not good to play with. So I have to say this was a really well-written summary in the research. I simply can't cover it all, all the stuff that was disclosed, and it is an interesting read. They started thinking about, and this is what I like about some, this is a Kevin moment, I like some research papers because the researchers start to think, well, what would I be asked and what will people question and how will they do it? This is one of those papers where somebody thought about things and covered a lot of ground for that. So good for them. End of Kevin moment. I've shared a link in the show notes if you want to explore the findings and activities in more detail. The name of the study is called Lithium Chloride Effectively Kills the Honeybee Parasite Varroa Destructor by a systemic mode of action, and I found the link that took me there on the website nature.com. Topic number three, I call this one BERT. My guess is that many of us, not me because of what I do here on the podcast, but in some respects, have not given much thought to the equipment we use in beekeeping, And I'm going to explain that in a second. And we make some interesting assumptions. Case in point, the humble frame. We know that Langstroth is credited with the concepts of bee space and movable comb. But what about the frame? Why does it have a predominant bar at the top with little ears that rest on a rabbit? How did the design where the sides are broad at the top, meaning the down bars, and then they taper to an hourglass figure to the bottom, how did that come to pass? Why is it we have so many derivatives of a standard frame design in a beekeeping catalog? 
all good questions, some of which I do not have the answer. However, there are two little factoids that I can share, and that's what this topic is about. The regular frame, the one we have in our pseudo Langstroth hive out in the yard, is called a Hoffman frame. Named after the credited inventor Julius Hoffman, this frame came into the public lexicon in the late 1800s and likely claimed its place in history courtesy of the AI Root Company and the British Bee Journal who around that time published designs that were similar in dimension and shape. So around that time, there were different people making hives and we hadn't settled 100% on Langstroth. So you had the Dadon hive and you had other form factors. So Dadon was pretty predominant and it is said that the Hoffman frames and the Dadon frames were 38 millimeters wide or around inch and a half and the British Standard and Langstroth designs were 35 millimeters or roughly 1.4 inches. The concept of self-spacing frames is really cool and again something we probably take for granted. Over 100 plus years since the days of Hoffman, we call our hives Langstroth hives, and we refer to self-spacing frames with ears as Hoffman frames, or so I have come to learn while studying for my master beekeeper's test. But they're Hoffman in design, but they're Langstroth in width. So in essence, it's a soup. The names have come to represent a technology, so to speak, and are not true to form of the original designs, but conceptually serve a purpose to represent a technology. So the Hoffman frame, that's one to remember, but what about the Manly frame? No, I'm not making a joke. And a brute of a frame, it is, but the Manly moniker helps you to remember what I'm going to share so that works for me too. Robert Manley was well known in the British commercial beekeeping scene. And he developed an alternative frame that is more common in Britain than it is here in the United States. The Manley frame takes a different approach in that its sides are straight. They don't taper to that hourglass figure. And they're around 43 millimeters or 1.6 inches and straight as a ruler. The premise of these frames were about honey processing as they are intended for honey supers and not down in the brood chamber. Here is why I say that. When you look at the images of these frames, you will see that the top bar is narrow and by all appearances about half the width of the sidebars. The bottom bar appears to be similar, if not the same dimension, meaning it's narrow. So how does this benefit one in a honey super? If the top and bottom bars are narrow, but the sidebars are wide, bees will build out past the face of the top and bottom bars and provide the perfect guide for uncapping the frames. Take a long knife, set the heel against the top of the bar, and the tip goes along the bottom bar, and with a sawing motion, you can get the perfect uncap of a honey frame. So let me talk about an alternative to this. 
you could simply just take your Langstroth frames. By the way, this is a Kevin moment. Got me to thinking about something that someone taught me once. Just do not put your frames shoulder to shoulder in the supers. In the honey supers, spread them out a little bit. Bees want to maintain a certain space between the face of this comb and the face of the comb next to it so that they can jump across the frame. And if you put new wax foundation in a honey super during the nectar flow and spread the frames out a little bit, they'll build the comb just a little bit deeper on both of those boxes, both of those frames, I mean, in order to ensure that they can get from one to the other. In other words, they'll maintain bee space. Now, sometimes what they do is they build one shallow and build the other one into it or whatever. So one of the ways to do that is put a drawn frame, a foundation frame, a drawn frame, and they'll build the foundation one out a little wider. Yeah, that's enough on that. End of Kevin moment. So it seems Robert was a pretty smart guy. All well and good, but wait, there's more. I called this segment Bert. Why, you might ask? Because in literature, Robert was referred to as R period O period B period Manly. That stood for Robert Bert in quotes, Orlando Beater Manly. Beater, that's that's odd. Now how about that for a name? R period O period B period according to Wikipedia. So it can't be wrong. He is given credit for propagating the use of thymol. Is it thymol? Thymol. I don't know the answer to that. In syrup for winter feeding to prevent fermentation and growth of mold in sugar solution. Is it possible that this was the precursor to using thymol for varroa? One could only speculate, but he did provide a thymol recipe that some may still use to this day. And what I've seen is that you could use this recipe, and then there were recommendations of 2x, 3x, 4x, and he had certain ratios where you can increase the strength depending on what you were trying to achieve. So that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe he's the one, because you have to wonder, Apigard as a product, how did that come to be? Why did they choose Tamil as the essential oil that they were going to try and combat? Why didn't they use, um, I don't know, eucalyptus or what do they use for mosquitoes? I forget. It's drawn up. It'll come to me in a minute. No, it didn't. <laughs> Citronella. You know, there's other choices, but they use thymol. So you never know. Maybe maybe his recipe, somebody like what we talked about a moment ago, discovered that it impacted Varroa. So he's also known to say that one should feed bees a sugar solution. So remember, this is the 1800s. Maybe people didn't do that. He surmised it was to ward off dysentery, which may or may not make sense given what we know now, but it is suggested that he might be the one who first provided the notion that bees need to be fed 
And he also shared in that notion that he knew of nothing better to encourage a rapid spring buildup. So who knew? That's what there is to love about beekeeping. You could trace the lineage back and what's old is new again. And things rediscovered are always of interest to me. So search for R period O period B period mainly to learn more about the man or take a look at the links I provided in this episode show notes. And it'll have the links that I used and referenced for resources in this piece. For topic number four, the New Jersey Honey Show. I always wanted to participate in the Honey Show. I always wanted to enter honey into a show. I haven't done that yet. That's kind of funny, isn't it? The number of years. But it did always seem too fussy in my time. And But this was the year. I was really compelled. And one of the things that came up, and this is a stupid reason to do it, but the New Jersey Department of Agriculture thing, we really wanted to show legislators local honey and the value of it. And what happens after the honey show, when the honey is judged and the prizes and things like that, it all gets taken after the show is over to the state rotunda, the Capitol building in Trenton, and it sits there for a week and legislators can walk by. So I wanted to enter the honey show this year. And since the honey show has gone on, I've always thought to myself, I should go check it out, take pictures, cover it, do a feature on it. But every year, bar none, when the time comes, I was out of town one time at a conference, and I'm always really busy. But I wanted to, and I've taken an interest in the judging process for honey shows. So I thought, you know, this year I'm going to take it in. And not only that, we got a new camera. Santa brought us one. And I'm trying to learn how to use the camera for the trip for Malawi. So it gave me an excuse to go take some more practice pictures. So I worked it out with Cynthia Wirtz, who is the show chair. We went to the RVBA meeting, and she's a member there, so am I. And then she came and helped us with the Honey Show judging at our Northwest meeting and gave us the lay of the land and I was able to work my way in. So by serendipity, I had an open schedule this past Thursday and I worked through lunch and then took some time to slip away in the early afternoon and drive 295 south to the eco-complex in Bordentown where the team was doing the judging. So all the way there is thinking, well, what's this going to be? I had no idea how they judge, where they judge, what it looks like. In reviewing the venue and thinking through the shots, I walked around and unfortunately I was a little disappointed when I got there because they were judging the honey, but the rest of all the categories were wrapped in plastic still. They hadn't judged it. And... The place was in an office off to the side in the complex. It had fluorescent lighting and kind of dim room with very simple, plain furniture, pedestrian tables and walls. It just wasn't conducive to getting some really nice shots, but 
you know, so be it. I, I looked around and I formulated a game plan and I got to work. So the first thing was I went in the room and the judge was Megan McConnell and the other person was Emily Brown. I know Megan. I don't know her, know her. I know her to say hello to her. And I know who she is. She's the state apiarist for Delaware, recently appointed. I didn't know who Emily was till after the, the event. I googled her and found out she's from Arizona. I don't know how she made her way into the New Jersey honey judging, but it seemed like her and Megan knew each other pretty well. Tim Schuler was there. He was facilitating. Cynthia Wirtz, of course. And John Gott, who I've interviewed on the program, he works a lot with Tim on different things. He was there helping with the judging. Now, the judging was done on New Jersey honey providers, and so they brought out-of-state judges in. Well, John's not an out-of-state judge. So all John was doing was taking samples and putting them in to see what the water content was. So he had really nothing to do but look in the hydrometer and say, you know, it's under the certain threshold or whatever it was. So I started getting comfortable. I took a couple shots outside first, got my bearing around the camera. And then I went into the room where they were judging. And it it was a little awkward at first. They were looking funny because they were self-conscious that I was taking pictures. But I was chatting with them about different things. And I know, obviously, about how the judging goes and paying attention. And they had finished right at the end or near the beginning of when I got there, they had finished the regular categories and they were doing the black label tastings. So we were tasting with toothpicks. I got to sneak a taste or two while we, while I was shooting pictures. And so they got a lot more comfortable and they knew who I was and we were chatting and, and it really started to flow and I was taking a bunch of pictures. I really have been struggling with this camera to get the the concept of how to focus with it. And as a sidebar, I went out today, as I'm recording this, it's Saturday evening, February 10th. I went out today and I finally figured out, just stop trying to have the camera focus and do manual focus. And I got so many really good pictures. So, yeah, I had to figure out the lighting. And what I found is a lot of the pictures came out with a yellow cast because of the lighting. And I had to do post-processing to change the white balance. And what was funny is I had been studying on the camera. And I learned a lot about the different features of how to adjust in lighting and change the exposure. And I had made myself a cheat sheet and I didn't bring it with me. So I didn't know what I was doing. So I tried to remind myself to pay attention to the subject and then look at the field of view, like what am I seeing? And partway through the day when I reminded myself that, I started seeing, well, their phone was laying in the shot. They had uh, water bottles that they were using to cleanse their palate and there was Poland spring in the, in the you know shot and just tried to clean up and make things look a little nicer. Had I been a real professional photographer, I probably would have asked them to clean the space and make it more presentable. 
because as it was, um, you know, there was a lot of what I'll refer to as eye dirt in the pictures. These are things that shouldn't be in a really nice photograph of somebody doing a honey tasting or smelling a honey jar or things like that. So one of the things I noticed is that I just couldn't get enough light in that room. And I had the light that I purchased for my polariscope with me. So I put that on the camera and I got some better shots from that. And it was playing with the camera settings, exposure, focus, looking for different things, little stories. So at one point they were tasting with toothpicks. So I had all three put their toothpick in and pull up a glob and took a shot of that. And I framed them sitting behind and looking into the polariscope. And we were we made an observation during the time when a gamber jar and a queen line jar, those are two forms of glass jars that you use for honey judging, are set side by side. Queen line is better, my opinion. The mouth of the jar is bigger. You could put a real spoon in it. And when you set the two side by side, it looks like a bigger jar because the, the top is bigger. It gives a bigger footprint from visual that you're getting more honey. Even though it's a pound jar, it's still... But it's kind of funny that way. By the way, I read in a feature from Bee Culture that honey will be lighter in a gamber jar because the glass is thinner than some of the other ones. Isn't that interesting? So if you put your honey in a gamber jar and you put it in a honey show when they rate it, it might go in light amber instead of amber because it's in a specific jar. Hmm? So while I was taking the picture, I soaked it all in. I watched how the judging went. I watched some of their deliberations. There was a lot of honey entered. And I saw how they separated it by class. Light amber, amber, dark. Some of the dark stuff was really, really dark. I was surprised. I haven't seen honey that dark in a long time. I got to see him use the polariscope. And, um, yeah, I <laughs> found some hairs <laughs> and some things like that in there. That's always, they were debating. Well, I, I won't go there. <laughs> Kevin moment. I presume my jar was clean, given how scrupulous I was. But I do have a dog, a mustache, and anything's possible. But, nah, not mine. End of Kevin moment. It was especially fun to watch them do the black label. I, I should explain that. Black label is you enter a jar of honey. You don't worry about it being crazy clean and filtered and whatever. They just simply open the jar. They taste it. And they smell it. And they decide whether it tastes good and smells good. And honey shouldn't have a sour t taste to it. It shouldn't have an off taste to it. There were some interesting honeys. Um, some of them had like a mintiness to them. A weird kind of mint, not a good kind of mint. Like an off taste, I don't, like um, a licorice flavor to them. And, you know, some of them had no odor. How is that possible that you have a honey that has no odor? Never heard of that. So they smelled every jar and reflected on the odor. They tasted and discussed the tasting. 
in the beginning of how we do tasting, when we do our tastings at Northwest, the beginning, the middle, and the end, the finish, the aroma. They observe the viscosity and the mouthfeel. And of course, um, if they were runny, they quickly took a sample of it to see if it was just a runny honey or something that had too much moisture got extracted when it shouldn't have. So during the day, I asked Tim for tips about the polariscope. And one of the observations I had about the polariscope is that Tim's, the one they used for the judging was Tim's. His is covered all the way. They put the honey in uh, a box, so to speak, and there's no light from the outside. And to me, that seems the way to go. I'm going to have to create some sort of enclosure to make sure that I can keep the light out so the only light shining through the jar is the light coming from the polariscope. All in all, I was impressed by the number of entries, and I think this year they said it was one of the best they ever had. There were some amazing entries, but out of respect for all participants, I didn't want to risk any negative impacts on any of the other stuff besides the honey jars. Because they had judged all the honey, I was free to take any pictures, move them, do whatever, and I did that. But when it came to lip balm and wax candles, they were all either wrapped in plastic or fragile, and the judges hadn't seen them yet, so I didn't take pictures of that stuff. On Monday, it's going to begin the display, and sometime this week, I'm hoping to scoot down to Trenton and take pictures of everything. We'll see if work affords me the ability to do that. So how did the pictures come out? Eh, I didn't take enough photos. How absurd was that? I took 100-something photos, and I still didn't take enough. I have to learn that photos are free when it comes to a 64 gigabit card. So note to self, if you ever get in a position where you're taking photos, just keep taking them. Especially if your subjects are not, they don't care. You know, they've gotten used to you. Shoot, 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 shoot. Because what happens is you see these moments where people are uh, doing their thing and you go, God, just a, just a smidge more, or a, a little bit longer, or change their head. or So I think next time I'm going to do a little more direction and a little more shooting, for sure. I'm still getting used to the camera, and like I said, I didn't like the focus of the images. I simply don't know how to get this dialed in, but today I kind of figured it out, and it comes with just do it manually. I know how the autofocus works, but using it has been really disappointing. So case in point, I mentioned the three toothpicks going in to scoop out for a tasting. The jar was in focus, but the honey was out of focus and it wrecked the picture. And sometimes I didn't like the compositions. I should have been more diligent about moving things around, making the shot look better, and doing what I said earlier, get the water bottles and phones and stuff out of the picture. I guess I should say I wanted more glam shots and not just documented people working shots.
But still, there were some good ones, but none of them really wowed me. It's only the second time taking photos with this SLR, and I'm green as could be. I've been on training sites learning commands of my camera and basics of photography, and it will be a new passion of mine, but it's clearly not as easy as it looks to do it well. But I have to say the pictures I took outside today, even in low light, came out really, really well, so I'm optimistic that I've turned a corner. So in the end, I have to say thanks to Cynthia Wirth for letting me do it. I sent the photos over today, the good ones, to the New Jersey Beekeepers Association for their newsletter. I'm hoping some of them get in there. And I think I'm going to start writing some features. They asked me if I would be willing. They're looking for anybody to create content stuff. So, so New Jersey Honey Show. It was a lot of fun. And I think uh, I'll make time next year if they'll have me back. And who knows, maybe I'll help judging somewhere along the line. Good luck to all our participants. And for what it's worth, I kind of got a hint that my entry did okay. I don't know what that means. I guess I'll find out when they announce the show results. But uh, that's pretty exciting to enter your first show and hear your stuff was okay. No hairs. <laughs> okay, move along. Topic number five, Polariscope. So I'm starting to form all my thoughts cohesively about building the Polariscope, as you heard in topic number one with Sharon and I chatting. And I've made a really exotic one where I'm going to. That's what I envision. Why? Because the materials for it are ridiculously expensive when compared to what you find on the Internet which is simply just a box with a light bulb and a couple screens. But I wanted to create something new, and then what I think is going to happen is people will take the idea that I came up with and find cheap ways to build it. So let me tell you what I have in mind. If you're not familiar with a polariscope, it's used to filter the light properly so that you can see through a honey jar talked about this a number of times I don't want to belabor the point but just in case you're brand new and don't know what one is they use them in honey judging to see whether or not there's any debris or crystallization in a honey jar consumers like their honey at least in the United States crystal clear in the case of the way that I'm thinking of building mine I want to change the light source the typical light source is a standard light bulb Standard light bulb has switched from an incandescent to fluorescent, compact fluorescent. But one of the problems with that is it creates a really bright center and a diverse, diffused outer ring. And you really want a more consistent light. <clears throat> I've seen um, photographers at different shows, people who are professional photographers... And I pay attention to them all the time because I'm into video and photos and podcasting and so on. They have these LED panels. Some of them are 2x2, two two, some of them are 4x4, four four, some of them are 8x10. You can get them in all different sizes. And these things are super bright and they're white all the way across the panel. So I thought, boy, that would make a really great light for this purpose. 
it's a diffused light over a wide span, and it's not the same as the center light of a bulb. The other thing that's appealing is a light bulb sticks out a couple inches, and this is really literally two or three inches deep. That means the box that holds the light will be shallower, and it should generate less heat, which I think makes this a little more amenable. So switch to the light program. Go with LED lights. Because we bought a new camera, and I intend to use this, there's been a number of times when I uh, go out and shoot video that it's really dark. And the way this panel works is it, it obviously turns, has a light switch on the back, but it has an up and a down, and it allows you to dial super bright or dim it back a little bit. And that's perfect for a polariscope because if it's super bright, sometimes on a light honey, it blows right through it. You can't see anything. And you want to be able to dial it back some. So we bought this thing, and I'm going to use it in my video kit. And then if and when I ever need a polariscope, I'll just take it off and I'll mount it in the box and go do what I'm going to do with it. So I bought it for my video kit. It was 40 $40 or something and I bought a really good one with a lot of different lights because I wasn't sure how much light I'd need if you go look on Amazon or other places you could find these things for 10 15 20 bucks maybe even less I bought a really good one because it has a battery on the back no cord so that's cool and the battery will last for eight hours easily so I like that idea of form over function. And I'm going to use it in my video kit and then use it the other way. So like I said, when somebody goes to build this, if they want to reference the design, they could buy a cheaper version of the light with a plug or whatever, and it, and it shouldn't cost $40. should be not too much different from a regular light bulb, as an aside, right, if you have to build the fixture for it. So the second thing is the... I, I know nothing, even though I looked it up and I saw information and I did a lot of research on the film that you have to use to filter the light. But I got an epiphany, and I hope I'm right, is that on a computer screen, they give you privacy filters. And the privacy filters, when you look straight ahead, you can see through. But if you go to the left or the right, you can't see. And I think that's the same thing as a polariscope. It's a linear line, meaning straight up and down. Apparently, they have circular filters. So I bought two screens that are used to protect 22-inch monitors. Again, on Amazon, I think they were like 10, 12 bucks. And now what I know is that if they get scratched or dented or dinged or whatever, then that doesn't work. You really want to protect them. So typically, people put them between sheets of glass. Well, how do you hold two pieces of glass? you got to build a frame and do all that. So it just so happens that I had another idea for this. On my desk at work is uh, an award that they gave me for, this is when I worked there, 15 years of service. And it's acrylic picture frame that has two blocks 
And in the blocks in the four corners, there are rare earth magnets on both sides. You pull the block apart, you put the certificate of 15 years, and you take these uh, blocks and you put them and they line up and they go and they stick together and whatever's in between them is protected. And you could find these things on Amazon and they come in all different sizes. 4x6, 5x7, 8x10, and bigger or smaller. They come in different thicknesses. Some are one inch thick so that when you set them on the desk they don't fall over. Some of them are thin. Some of them come in a little stand. So I did some research and I picked a couple. And I ordered them. They're coming this week. I don't know whether this is going to work or not. But the reason I ordered bigger screens, and actually I don't think they're 22 inch. They're A4 size paper, which is a little bit bigger than an 8.5 by 11. And the blocks that I ordered, I rationalized that 5 by 7 is the right size for it. So I could take an A4 paper and stand it on in and trim it to the block and get the vertical. And I could turn it, because it's so big, horizontal and trim it and get it. So the larger sized format of the two screens that I bought, I can use them to cut them to the right size. And I don't have to build some sort of frame to protect them. I'll just put them between the two blocks and the magnets will hold them together. So when I build the box to hold the frame or hold the light, I'll build it so that I can slide the block in and it'll hold it. I've been thinking about different ways. I don't quite have it all figured out yet. I'll probably mock it up and, and get that sorted out. So I was thinking of a telescoping design. A box within a box. And the first box slides into the second box. And the, the outer box slides forward. And that creates the dark chamber for the honey jar to sit in. So I don't have that all worked out yet. But I thought I'd share where I was going with this. If you have any great epiphanies and ideas, please feel free to send me a note. One of the other things that I thought about doing with this is building some sort of chamber to put a flashlight, like one of those little LED bright super mega flashlights because you use that to shine through a honey jar and do that, and your refractometer, and maybe some other tools that you use for honey judging. So I haven't figured that out yet, but I do think I'm going to build some sort of compartment to hold some tools. So, why did I go through all this trouble? There is one design out on the internet, and, and Tim Schuler sent it to me. It was published in B Culture. But if you go and look, that's the only thing out there. And believe me, I looked forever. I looked for a long time for different designs. Now, I've seen photographs of three different polariscopes that you could find on the Internet. And that's it. Isn't that crazy? So there must be honey judging shows everywhere in the world. So I have a mission for the listeners. If you know someone with a polariscope, ask them to take a photograph of it and send it to me, kevin at bkcorner.org. I'm going to find a place on the internet to post pictures of everybody's polariscopes so that people can see what they look like. And my guess is that there are different designs out there, not just the one that was published. I did find one commercial polariscope 
Now, mind you, polariscopes are out there in a wide array. They're usually used for gemology, is my guess. But they don't work for honey jars because they're too small. And they work in a vertical format, meaning they shine straight up and down. And you take a honey jar and you put it in the box and then you look horizontally through the jar. So it doesn't work that way. There was one company I found that sold something that looked like what we use in honey judging. But I didn't see a price, and I can't figure out how much it costs, but it's fabricated out of metal, and it's probably a million dollars to buy that thing. So that makes me think what I built is not going to be too expensive, because I can imagine this machine it has to cost $100, dollars $300, I don't know. So I've rambled on enough about this. Let me go ahead and move along to the next topic. Topic number six, I want to talk about the jam frame. I found this on um, a Facebook forum. I don't remember which one. I subscribed to a good number of them. I think it had something to do with either natural or treatment-free. Maybe it was Parker's. There's um, a frame design that someone came up with and it's in France it's a standard frame but on the left hand side about two inches down from the top bar there is a diagonal swath of wood that goes to the bottom right hand corner if you look at the evaluation of how the bees adopted to this you ask yourself why would you do this their idea is that if you go foundationless, this is a better option, especially if you want to do extraction. So if you evaluate the pictures in the post, there were some that were partially drawn. The bees did not connect the comb to the top edge of the diagonal. Let me explain what I mean by that. They built down from the top bar. They built down the sides, but when it came to attaching to the diagonal bar that ran across from the upper left to the bottom right, they only connected in a couple points. They left holes for whatever reason, maybe cross between combs, I'm not sure. Then you see one where the top part is fully drawn out. Then you see one where the top is fully drawn out and the bottom is partially drawn out. Now, in my experience, pop quiz, I've seen people who've taken bars and put them across, and I have a couple of them out. What would the purpose of that be? Most of the time, the bees will store honey in the top. This is my experience. And they will put drone in the bottom. And then people cull the bottom off and make drone comb. So it's like foundationless with a twist. But the supporting bar gives support. In its form, I think it does encourage drone in the outer area. Meaning, if you put this frame in your box and you put it in the bottom near the brood chamber, if you put it in the brood chamber area, they would build brood. If you put it to the outside, they would probably put drone brood in the bottom 
And if you put it to the far outside, they may store honey in it. So the concept of this is it's supposed to make it easy to extract. That's one of the ideas. And then it also helps from a foundationless standpoint. Now, from what I could tell, it's just a plain bar. There's no, um, you know, typically when you do foundationless, sometimes people put a popsicle stick or some sort of groove to help the bees. This is just a flat piece of wood. So what's the impression of this? According to the beekeeper, he was pretty excited about it. And I should note, this was on a French beekeeping site in French. And I used a translator to translate it. So some of what it translated may or may not be uh, well done. The author claimed that they drew the frame out faster. I guess that means they were not hesitant about drawing from the top bar down to the new diagonal bar. And they did that quicker than if you just stuck a foundationless frame with nothing on it. That's an interesting finding. It's just another way to go about something. They seemed rather exciting, excited about it. There was some conversation about small cell. There was conversation about culling drones. I'm sure you can go into a lot of different philosophical things about how these frames would work in a specific hive. And I think where you place them in a hive would probably be uh, something to consider. Because as I said, I think if you put them on the outside, they would build drone comb. But if you put it right in the brood chamber, I think I do recall one comment about somebody saying you're taking away space where there could be cells. and But then again, you don't have to wire the frames and no foundation. Anyway, this is called a jam frame, J-A-M-B. And if you're interested, we'll have a link to the... Um, I guess I could do that. I'm not sure if that's going to be open. If I could provide a link, I'll do it. So there you go, the jam frame. The next topic is what would traditionally be a round table. Follow-up to homosote. In a previous episode, I talked about using homosote as a wicking moisture hive winterization product. Yeah. I got a message from Patrick Maloney, one of our UK listeners, saying homosote fiberboard that we talked about in episode 119. It's a US brand and it doesn't seem to be available over there. They have something similar to this made from recycled newspaper by a firm called Sundelia probably pronounce that wrong s-u-n-d-e-a-l-a he says it's commonly used for notice boards in schools and is available untreated which is the way you want to go for bees of course it's um fire retardant so it probably is soaked like the same way that i described in that piece and if you want to find a link to that in the UK he gave a website link it's www.sundealaco.co.uk 
www.sundiella.co.uk. Thanks, Patrick, for sending that along. Appreciate that. Roundtable number two. Little news coming out of the American Beekeepers Federation concerning our friends at Broodminder. It looks like they struck a deal to have Rushy Mountain be the supplier to distribute Broodminders. So that's an interesting development. Uh, Rich Mars and friends will be in New Jersey for the upcoming meeting, which I'll talk about a little later. And... Um, it looks like they're found a partner to do distribution. So my thought on this is Rich is an R&D guy. This is his focus. Bob Kloss and I were talking about it. And it has to be a drag to, I, I, I don't want to say this, sorry. I didn't mean to go that way, but I'll say it. Dealing with people sucks. <laughs> you know, it's got to be difficult to do everything really well. When you're a research guy and you want to work on the product and advance it, and, but you're overwhelmed by doing distribution, especially in, in a good way, he's very successful. Their team is successful, and they're only getting bigger. So the news from uh, Broodminder is you can buy the devices from Brushy Mountain going forward. Um, it looks like, and this is the way of the world, Prices are going to go up a little bit, but that's okay. Um, they're going to be supported. In other words, if you have a problem with the distribution and you want to call in, you can call Brushy Mountain. That's got to be really helpful for uh, the Broodminder team to have a professional dedicated staff there all the time to answer questions about products, which is what I'm sure Brushy Mountain does in their day jobs. So... So that's pretty interesting, pretty excited. I think that's a good evolution for a small company, medium company, whatever size Rich is, and team. And uh, I'm happy to hear that. I'm interested in getting an update from him when I see him one-on-one -on -one when I go to the state meeting, which is coming up soon. I noticed a, a bit of a conundrum. The state meeting weekend for New Jersey Beekeepers Association is the same weekend as the Daytona 500. That's a moral struggle for me. Yeah. I have to figure out what to do with that. I really think I'm going to back off on the Sunday show. As much as I love beekeeping, it's the Daytona 500, everybody. Yeah. Roundtable number three. Received a number of listener mails, and I'm just a little bit behind. I got one from Jeff Hitchcock. He's been listening for a couple of months. He says, My family and I have been keeping bees for about three generations. Grandpa Hitchcock started in Perth, Andover, New Brunswick in the 1950s. And then his father kept bees and so on. Um, he stopped doing it for a while when his father passed away. And just recently it appears that he restarted it. So he talks about what some guidance about how they keep it. It's not much different. You want your hives to face south, get as much sun as possible. Uh, I think he says that they've been getting negative 30 degrees Celsius or worse regularly this winter. 
Ow. Wow. <laughs> I was right. You know, with the people up there, they, they deal with it. He said we wrap our hives with tar paper. And so long as the top is insulated, uh, it sounds like they get through it. And they prep their hives, it looks like, sometime around Halloween. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Jeff was writing something apparently just before breakfast and took a time to say hello. So I'll say hi back. Thanks, Jeff, for writing in. There's a couple others that have written in. Sorry, I just haven't been able to get to their emails. You know, it's been one of those periods where I've been uh, training for work and doing my master beekeepers just about every night trying to study. And then I have other things going on in life. And it's really difficult at work because I'm with my new role, I have to learn new things. And I've been studying nonstop and my brain hurts. And I come home and it just oozes out of my ears. And sometimes I don't even bother coming downstairs. I just go right up the steps and go to bed. So, yeah, every night, something to do. And uh, a little behind on a couple things. But I saw uh, a donation or two come in. Thank you. To those who donate to the PayPal on our homepage. Uh, not a lot of donations come in, but when they do, I really do appreciate it. And if you've written in, hang in there. Uh, I will at some point circle back and go through and read all the emails and uh, see what's in there. So thanks for taking the time. I will get to them. I should come back to center and say that uh, Jeff wrote... I'm worried about your New Jersey Department of Agriculture proposed regulations making their way here. Ontario has a habit of seeing what their neighbors are doing and copying. Your fight is interstate and international. Yeah, I agree. I keep telling everybody, you need to be paying attention to what's going on here in New Jersey. As you heard from my conversation on the opening with Sharon, the New Jersey Department of Agriculture is, uh, time is ticking for them. Hopefully these legislators will turn them off and make them go back and rewrite that. So we'll see where that goes. But I agree with you, Jeff. I think everybody needs to pay attention to what happened here and what is happening here. Roundtable number four, this will be a quick one. Wart be gone. So if you listen to the episode, this is not my favorite topic to talk about, but it is related to beekeeping. I had a wart on my index finger of my left hand, and for a long time I tried to get rid of it, and at one point I changed the tactic. I stopped using Compound W and put propolis on it. It worked, and I never said anything. I want to say it was about Thanksgiving time period. It went away. I stopped putting it on when I saw a major decrease in it, and it literally is gone to this day. I have a smooth fingertip, no evidence whatsoever. You would never know that I had a wart on my finger. So does propolis work to remove warts? You betcha. So it seems time to close out the episode, and we'll do a little time warp. It's 10.54 p.m., and I... Put the rest of the production together and I'm just recording this closing comment. The 8th Annual Philadelphia Beekeepers Guild Natural Beekeeping Symposium 
Sunday edition was amazing. Really good show. Dr. Leo Sharashkin, the horizontalhive.com guy, Layens Hives. Really, really good program. Uh, you know what was cool is everything he covered, it's like, uh, I don't know if this is going to be an interesting topic. He made it interesting in spades. So many things to learn. It's amazing. Think about all the things that I've covered on the podcast, and it amazes me how I could continue to learn so many things that I had no idea about. He really put on a good program. And I got his business card, and yep, I bought a hive today. I always wanted to try one of these Layens hives, and he had a nuke box for sale, or a swarm trap, or a smaller form factor, and I bought it. I'm going to try it out. So the other news of the day is the Honey Show results came through, and I won. <laughs> I can't believe I won. I won my class, and I won the division for Honey. Who knew? Beginner's luck, I guess. That's pretty exciting. The bad news is they're going to auction my honey off, and I won't get it back, but that's okay. I've got more. But all the work that I put in, you heard in the conversation in the opening with Sharon, I guess it paid off. I'm as shocked as anybody, but I'm happy to take it. So what a cool way to end the day. Next weekend is the New Jersey Beekeepers two-day symposium. I'm signed up, and I'll be there. Not sure what the agenda is. I haven't had a chance to look at it. Two weeks from now, to this day, I believe, I am on an airplane flying to South Africa for the Malawi trip. Pretty excited about that. Trying to get all our stuff arranged, and that's going to be some interesting packing, that's for sure. So, okay, time to close it down. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, We accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.